Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Foo followers around the world, and welcome to the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. We have a special bumper collection of prizes to give away in this month's competition. For our UK Foo followers, we have three copies of Cine Asia's latest release, Iceman the Time Traveller, up for grabs, starring Donnie Yen. And to celebrate the release of the martial arts extravaganza Triple Threat, we have three prize packs to give away for our North American Foo followers of Walgo USA. The action-packed Triple Threat is directed by Jesse V. Johnson and stars Eco Uace, Tony Jaa, Tiger Chen, Scott Adkins, Michael Jai White, Michael Bisping and Selena Jade. The prize packs contain a copy of the film on Blu-ray plus some mini posters. To take part in this month's competition, all you have to do is sign up to our newsletter now at kungfumovieguide.com. Head to the homepage, type in your email address when prompted, and then verify your email address to be automatically entered in our competition. Full competition details will be announced in our next newsletter, which will be released on the 26th of May. So become a registered Foo follower today to be in with a chance of winning those cool prizes. Best of luck! Okay, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this episode of the show, episode 38, with none other than Don the Dragon Wilson. How about that? So, without any further ado, let's get on with the show. Here we go. Well, if you're really so determined to have a fight, then I'll oblige. Well, hello, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world. Welcome to the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast with your host, Ben Johnson. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for checking in and listening to this episode of the show. Today, we have 11-time world kickboxing champion and action film star Don the Dragon Wilson on the show. It was a real treat to be able to uh, chat to Don. This conversation has been a long time in the making. Don and I have been chatting uh, offline intermittently quite a bit since I first uh, started this podcast way back in 2016. And we finally made the time work and arranged this conversation that you are about to hear. Anyone who has ever worked with Don or chatted to him over the years will know that he's a very chatty, friendly and engaging person. And it was really great to be able to chat to him about his career, both as a professional fighter, but also as probably the most popular or the most famous star of the director video martial arts movie market, which obviously took off in the late 80s and 1990s. Don, of course, is the star of the Blood Fist series, as well as many other beloved low-budget action movies from that period. 
He got his big break working under the guidance of the master of exploitation cinema, Roger Corman. We do talk about his working relationship with Roger on this episode of the show. Listen, I watched a heck of a lot of Don the Dragon Wilson movies growing up, so this was a a real personal highlight of mine to be able to spend some time talking to Don, and I very much look forward to sharing that conversation with you all shortly. First of all, a very big thank you for all the kind comments that I've received about our previous episode, episode 37, which featured my conversation with Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon Lee. Shannon is the executive producer on the new martial arts drama series Warrior, which is playing now on Cinemax in the States. That episode of the podcast also featured a conversation with the show's star, Andrew Koji. And at the time that the podcast was released, we didn't yet know if Warrior would be getting a second season or not. Well, Cinemax have now confirmed that Warrior will be returning for a second season. So that's great news for for Andrew and for Shannon and everyone else involved in that show. If you haven't heard the episode yet, you can, of course, catch up with my conversation with Shannon and Andrew, as well as all the other great guests that we've had on the show by subscribing to the podcast now at all the usual podcast providers. So we are on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and any other place where you get your podcasts. You can, of course, find out the latest goings-on with the show, as well as all the latest martial arts movie news and reviews by following the Kung Fu Movie Guide on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I also wanted to add that I did manage to catch up with a few previous guests that I've had on the show at last week's Fighting Spirit Film Festival, which took place here in Birmingham in the UK. A huge thank you to Sue Cole and all of the team there for another great event, as well as martial arts demonstrations and short films. The event also included the UK theatrical premieres of Triple Threat and Master Z Ip Man Legacy or Master Z, as I suppose I should say, being British. That's the Ip Man spin-off directed by Yen Wu Ping and starring Max Chang, Dave Bautista, Michelle Yeoh and Tony Jaa. Head to KungFuMovieGuide.com now to read reviews of both of those movies, which are now live on the site. The Triple Threat star and friend of the show Scott Adkins was the guest of honour at the event. He stayed to watch both of the movies and also took part in a Q&A at the end of the Triple Threat screening. In between screenings, I did manage to grab Scott for a quick 15-20 minute chat. We talked about It Man 4, we talked about Avengement, we talked about reuniting with the director Isaac Florentine, amongst many other things. It was really cool to catch up with Scott again and I will be sharing that conversation with you all in a later episode of the show so do keep it locked to the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast you can go and support all of the hard work that Sue and the Fighting Spirit team do by visiting their website fightingspiritfilmfestival.com where they are still doing a call out for submissions into this year's main festival which will take place here in London in September of 2019 so if you are a filmmaker and you would like to get involved in the Fighting Spirit Film Festival 2019, head over to their website where there is details on how you can submit your film and take part in this year's event. 
Okay, it's Don the Dragon Wilson time. Don plays the villain in the new action comedy Paying Mr. Maggetti. It came out last year in theatres in America, but you can now buy the film on DVD. We talk a little bit about that movie here, as well as a lot of his many other projects. You can keep up to date with all the latest Don the Dragon Wilson news by following him on Facebook. I will be back at the end of the show to sign off properly, but before that, I will hand you over now to my conversation with the martial artist and action film star, Don the Dragon Wilson. This is your home office then, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's right in the uh, first room you come to is my office. Great, great. It's where one day I will take over the Hollywood yeah. <laughs> uh, the Hollywood community from, from this office yeah. right here. Yeah, yeah. Is this mostly then for your, I know because you run a production company, I mean, you're, you're a very busy guy, oh, no. so I, it's probably... well, I've been producing movies since my, let's see, I became a producer on my third film yeah. future kick i believe it was yeah yeah i was like an associate producer or whatever but but i uh, know i i started off I, i've produced <laughs> look if you go for credits i've probably got co-producer credit on half my movies quite 16, a few 17 movies but i actually did the job once i learned the job i didn't have to be paid to do it i would do it just to be because i was in the movie i'm the star of a movie yeah. i want to make sure the music is right i want to make sure the casting is right yeah. the editing done correctly i mean i've gotten in, into the, even the posters. At one point, let me tell you how wrong things can go. Now, you know, my mentor is Roger Corman. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. He's the guy who got me in the business. When he told me right in the beginning that at the budgets that I work, he said, you have to be your own um, arbitrator of quality because he said other people don't care. You know, the director may not care, the editors yeah. may not care, the pr- production sound guy may not care. You never know, but, yeah. but you're, he, he said, your name goes above the title, your face is on the box, because yeah. box, I mean the video box back in the day. Yeah. And he said, so you will be held responsible for everything. Mm. I mean, if you watch one of my movies and the, let's say the sound was bad, you would say, wow, I said Don Wilson movie, the sound was terrible. I couldn't even hear what they were saying. <laughs> well, you know what? You don't look up the guy who did the sound, do you? No, that's right. You don't look up the, right. the production manager, the guy who hired the guy that did the sound. You don't look up the, the, the producer, associate producer, whatever, that took care of the post-production, right? You just go, oh, that Donald Dragon Wilson, his movies, you can't even hear the guys talking in them. <laughs> yeah. In the lower budget market, everyone's sort of sticking to schedule, aren't they? And everyone's just focused so much on their own thing. I guess that's where you have to really take well, over then, don't you? you know, look, I have had a career, 30 years in the low budget market, and I'm not, uh, believe me, I'm no thespian. But uh, I, have, I am a much better actor today after 30 years of acting in yeah. front of cameras and starring in 30 films than I was in 1988 doing yeah. Bloodfist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've come a long way. So now, when I get my chance at a big budget, a good director, a good script, great cast, I'll be able to I'll be able to make that transition, I believe. So you're still looking for that role, for that dream project? Yeah, you're still and, very yeah, active in the it, industry. I, yeah. I have some... Well, I, listen. I became what they call a name, which means... If I'm not going to sell at a certain budget, I'm the star because I'll sell enough tickets, you know, 
rentals or whatever to pay for the movie. But in the bigger budget movies, I'm just a recognizable figure. Yeah. In other words, I, I did a movie just uh, a year ago with Billy Zane where I come in. I'm not not one. I didn't throw one punch or a kick. Yeah. I was a Japanese businessman, kind of a criminal guy, and I got killed by a monster. Billy Zane was like a mad scientist, and he had a monster from some other dimension. Look. I only read the part of the script that I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't read the whole movie. Yeah. Now, that movie you may never see, by the way. It's called Z-Force, and it was um, shot. And, and th- listen, that was Michael Madsen, years, years ago, wasn't it? Business. Yeah, it was yeah. like two years ago. The, the Michael Ma- it may never come out because mm. movies get made, and they're never released. They, 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 what, the, that one, they ran out of funding. Yeah. It happens many times to other actors. They, yeah. they all talk about it. Yeah. But it never happened to me until... Um, yeah, I did V Force, and uh, there was the movies never come out. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And then you get a movie like, say, Death Fighter, and I know that was White Tiger before that, but that was filmed years and years and oh, years before, ago. White Tiger that that was shot in two thousand twelve, yeah, I believe. Yeah, and it came out I think last year, maybe the year before. I'm trying that. to remember if it was two thousand. I'm pretty sure it was two thousand twelve. Shot then. Yeah, but it came out. But that was lawsuits. That was legal things. There was nothing yeah. wrong with the movie. When I read the script, I said, well, "No, this is not the kind of movies they make today. Yeah. This is the kind of movies we made in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. You know, where where ninety percent of it is not dialogue, story, no, and 90, it's just fight scene, fight scene, yeah. fight scene. And um, in those days, that's that's what sold the movies. Yeah. You know, the, the more fight action, the better. Today, it's moved to an area of uh, like John Wick. Yeah. Or uh, the Equalizer, yeah. or uh, e- even Taken. I mean, the martial arts is in—it's intertwined in the story. It's part of the story. It's part of the character, mm. but it's not all about that. Yeah. It's not all about the beauty of the sidekick and the slow motion close-up of my fist punching a guy in the face. Yeah. We used to focus on that in the eighties and nineties, and so what what we did was we we did the movie. Because, you know, I mean, I didn't produce it. I, I, I was not a producer on that, as a matter of fact. Mm. I, I don't know if they even gave me the credit or not, but I didn't want it because I just came in there as what they call actor for hire. Yeah, yeah. They, they, and that doesn't mean you, you don't want the pro- – I wanted the project to be as good as possible, and I anything I could contribute, I did. Yeah. But I just did my job. Yeah. And yeah. then what happened was the day before they started shooting, they fired the director. Yeah, yeah. Because Toby, I, you know, Toby had to jump in, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he came in and um, directed the whole film yeah. and did a great job, by the way. Yeah. Did a great job. Um, but I don't know if the other guy, the other guy, w- w- it was going to be his first film. Mm. He, he was a writer. He wrote the script. Yeah. I give my quote, I call it the dragon two cents. But I do not go up and say, hey, look, you've got to cut this character out. It, you've got to change this line of dialogue to this. You've got. Yeah. I don't do that. Yeah. That, that. You know what? I, I, I've never done that. Even in the 80s and 90s when I had a lot of clout on the set. Yeah. I, I know I'm never comfortable with that because, I, in my opinion, it's a group of people. It's about 75 people, even in my low budgets. It's going to be that many people to make this movie. Yeah, I'm talking about the editors and the crew and the, you know, the, the actors. Everybody together contributes something, and um, I I'm not like a dictator and just and I just dictate everything. Matter of fact, even my choreography. I do things a lot of times and not the way I would do them because I use different choreographers because I don't want every single fight scene that the dragon is in to look exactly the same. 
What about projects that where you can get your own sort of martial arts philosophy over? I'm looking mostly at the martial arts kid here. That seemed yeah. to be a film where you did get across quite a bit of your philosophy, in, mainly in the sense of um, the way that martial arts should be taught. Yeah. In fact, the lessons that I taught yeah. were actual lessons that I teach in seminars. Yeah, yeah. It felt very personal. Look, in the original martial, the Karate Kid, because this was kind of like homage to it, yeah, if yeah. you want to call it that in a respectful way, not a ripoff, I'd yeah. call it a more of a homage. Yeah. They did, they, they had Ralph Macchio waxing a car to get ready for his fight. That's right. Now, now you wax all, if that really worked, all these guys working at the car washes in L.A. would all be boxing champions. Yeah. <laughs> if waxing cars can defend, you can defend yourself using your hands by waxing. No, it, it, it's, so, now this all came from my brother, by the way. He said, look, why don't you just teach a real lesson? Whatever you guys want, you teach a lesson. And then the writer and the director, Michael Baumgarten, said, well, can you teach a lesson that will have some way to relate in um, real life? Yeah. And I go, well, I said, well, well one, this, it's, it's kind of, it's confidence. Like learning these techniques and then being able to do them right, then you, you, you learn life lessons. Yeah. It's not actually just about throwing the punch and throwing the sidekick in the right rich hand or whatever. It's about, I didn't know this. I practice, I trial and error, I worked hard, and now I do know it, and you gain self-confidence. Do you think that that has sort of lost its way a little bit over the years in the way that the martial arts is, is taught nowadays? Not in the traditional schools, yeah. because traditional schools have not been around the last hundred years. They've been around for a thousand years. Yeah, yeah, true. Now, where, where I believe you're going with this is martial arts became a sport Worldwide in 1974, yeah. we had the first international what they call full contact karate fights in America, and that took it out of Japan and Japanese kickboxing and Thai boxing out of Thailand and started spreading it all over the West. Yeah. Now from those days, it went to kickboxing, and now it's because they took the kickboxing and added grappling. Now it's what they call MMA. Yeah. And in MMA, they don't teach all the life lessons. What they teach is choking and knocking people out. Yeah. You could choke them out, you could submit them, or you can knock them out, and they teach that in the MMA schools. What they're not teaching is the thousand years of self-discipline, respect, dedication, um, humbleness. Um, you know, the, uh, there's only two reasons to use the martial arts, and we put it in the martial art kit. One is if somebody attacks you, you use every martial art technique you have. Yeah. The other is if someone you witness someone attacking someone else. Do you see some woman you don't know, but some guy grabs her and slams her down on the ground? You go right over there and you, you know, throw a back leg at a roundhouse kick, knock her out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so those are the only, there are no other reasons to use it. Yeah. You take one of the icons of MMA, we call him, I think you could call him an icon because he made $100 million, Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor, yes, yeah. You know, you could probably take the next top 10 fighters and he's made more money than all of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So he's their iconic guy. Now, he takes a trash can, throws it at a bus... Yeah, and where there's women, and it cuts a girl's face, and cuts her, and, and I'm, I mean, not only is he not something you would take your children and say, son, I want you to grow up and be just like him. Mm. He's kind of a guy we have to lock up. There are many wrong reasons uh, for aggressive behavior, yeah. and and I believe when you take, I mean, you know, I, I, I would debate any of these promoters or teachers of any of the schools out there today, MMA schools. If they're not teaching traditional values with the martial arts, what they're doing is creating 
pure fighters. But if we were looking back now, when you were getting into this and then you turned professional in the 70s, if UFC or mixed martial arts was around back then, you would have you would right, have signed I'd up. Jump for right that. Into you would have joined up. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because look, it's I I would say the Einstein, modern day Einstein of martial arts is Bruce Lee. Yeah. Because Einstein changed everything. And he was like one guy, and he didn't do it by committee. He just came in and said, no, this is the way reality works. This is the way physics really yeah. works. And Bruce Lee came and said, look, there's no sense in studying one art. He said, study them all. Learn as much as you can. And then at the very end, you know, learn the grappling arts, the striking arts. He said, in the very end, you're going to have your own personal style because nobody, no two people are the same. Yeah. In Bruce Lee's time in the 60s, the, what you do is you studied one art. If it was goju, it was goju. If it was kung fu, it was kung fu. If it was taekwondo, it was taekwondo. You were a karate guy first, weren't you? Originally, I was uh, Goju, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I only took a year under a guy named Chuck Merriman, yeah. and then when I went to uh, Florida, I studied Kung Fu, and, and most people say, oh, you, you thought Kung Fu was better, and I said, no, if I wanted to take Goju, I'd have to pay for it. My brother had a Kung Fu school, right. and if I wanted to take Kung Fu, it was free. It was free, fair enough. <laughs> so that, that, that was the choice, and yeah. that's, that's why I went to Kung Fu. Yeah. That's not bad. Well, I told you. What was drawing you to, to fighting and the combat arts? Can you remember those like formative oh, yeah, years? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Because what, what? Here's what happened. I was born in 1954. Yeah. Now we had just finished a war with Japan yeah. that was in the 40s. That was only like 10 years before. Yeah. And you have a Japanese. Your mother. I was, was Japanese, Japanese, and I look Japanese though. I look Japanese, yeah. even though I'm half white, half American. You know, my father was Irish American. Yeah. Imagine this now. You're, you're Cocoa Beach, Florida, which is as far away from Japan as you can get and still be in America. Yeah. And it was in the 50s, and I have this Japanese face, and segregation was the law back then. Yeah. Blacks, black people did not go to school with whites. Yeah. So they didn't want to put me to the black school, so they put me in the white school. Yeah. Now, the white guys had never seen an Asian in their lives. No. No. These young kids. And so I was picked on every single day. Yeah. I can remember, and in those days, here's what they did. They had what they called a corporate, you know, a paddle, and you had corporal punishment. You get physically punished by the principal with this paddle. You had to hit like three times if you do anything wrong. Mm. So every day I'm getting paddled. And finally, I can remember him looking at me. He says, you know, Don, he said, you have been spanked more than any kid in this school. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, why don't you realize that it's I'm fighting because these guys are picking on me every day. Yeah. Yeah. And what it was is, they had a rule where it didn't matter who started it, whose fault it was, both guys get paddled. Yeah, yeah. But so, were you not uh, thinking, it, it, were you, you know, a bit confused? Because you were just a kid, but then you would have just been, uh, you know, growing up in Florida like well, every other kid in happened. America. Here's what happened. I realized, I realized I was not accepted. But I found out this early on. I don't remember the exact moment, but it did dawn on me that when you sink a 30-foot jump shot or you make a tackle... Uh, or you catch a password. If you do something in sports, everybody likes you. Sure. So what happened was, as I started doing sports, I immediately I must have got some immediate feedback where somebody said, oh, that was a great shot. Oh, that was a good move. Because I, start, I, I thrived on that. That's what I've been looking for as a child. My whole life is acceptance. Yeah. So I pushed myself harder, and here's what happened. I became the MVP, which is the most valuable player on my high school basketball yeah. and football teams. Yeah. I scored 40 points in one game as a basketball player. I was a team captain. I, I led all the tackles. I was a middle linebacker. I, I became, I excelled in sports yeah. because that's how I got accepted. Yeah. And 
Now that didn't. That's not why I took karate, though. What I took karate is I was in the Coast Guard Academy, and I came down one vacation to Florida because the Coast Guard Academy is in Connecticut, New England. Uh, my brother had a pair of boxing gloves, and he said, "Hey, you want to spar or something?" Because we used to box a little bit. And I said, "Yeah, yeah." And he is already a black belt at that time. He said, "I'm going to throw some kicks," and I said, "Yeah, go throw it a kick you want." Because I, in my mind, that, that's not going to do anything. Yeah. I'm just going to, you know, I, at that time I weighed 205 and I was all muscle. Sure. My brother was about 145. Yeah. But he was a black belt and I was a non, I was not, not even a white belt. Yeah. He just kicked my ass. Right. And I was in shock. I couldn't hit him. He hit me. He kicked me, side kicked me, brown ass kicked I, I was just, I couldn't, believe, I was like 18 years old. Or 17. I'm 17 now. But I, I couldn't believe, he made a believer out of me. That's the way I, yeah. I term it. Yeah. He made a believer. That I said, man, the martial arts, if my brother... My, and, and even though he was older, he was smaller. Yeah. If he could do that, he's, I said, I'm going to learn it. So when I went back to the academy, they had a school there. And that was the Goju school taught by Chuck Merriman. Yeah. And I, I, I signed up. Did you ever resent the Japanese part of your family because of the bullying or not? Um, no. You know, what is the bizarre thing? Because I can remember this as if it was yesterday. I used to go in front of mirrors. Yeah. when I was young. Now, when I say young, I'm saying grade school. Yeah. And stare in the mirror and say, what is it about me that they find different? Yeah. I could not see it. Yeah. Which is bizarre. Now, I don't know. I think there's a psychological term for that. There's There, there are people who can look at a face and not be able to uh, remember the face or the, they can't distinguish that face from another face. Sure. There's some, and, and I must have had a version of that as a child because yeah. I could look at my own face and not see that I was Asian. Mm. That's weird. It's a weird thing to think about. And I'm sure I've never talked to a psychiatrist about it, but there, there may be some condition of some kind or I was, cause I grew out of it. Now I can look, I can obviously see how I look Asian, yeah. but I couldn't see it then. Yeah. As a grade school, I could not. I said, what is, it, what is the difference? See, I got two eyes. I got a nose. My hair is a little dark, but a lot of guys got dark hair. I couldn't see the difference. So whatever it was about me that was different, they could see it. And then I wanted to show that if I'm different, that didn't mean it was a negative thing. Yeah. And by, I, what I tell people now is I look back, because I've done a lot of anti-bullying talks and things. I said, you know, I turned a negative into a positive. And now we'll see how good you are. You excelled at school, and you were studying electrical engineering. You went to uh, yes, Florida Institute of Technology. Yes, my father was at the Kennedy Space Center. That's, yeah. That, that's why we, I was following in his footsteps. He was an engineer, so I wanted to become an engineer. Yeah, that must have been a career option. At some point, you must have been like, that's oh, yes. the no, route I could I'm have. I, I, That's yeah. why my father wouldn't go to my fights, because I gave up being an engineer. I, I dropped out. I was on the dean's list, and I was uh, completed two years of uh, pre-engineering at a junior college, and was had been accepted to FIT, which... Well, we called it the MIT itself, but FIT is in Melbourne, Florida, and it the engineering students there go to the Kennedy Space Center, which was the premier place to work yeah. in the 60s and 70s yeah. because Kennedy set it up. It was called Cape Canaveral then, but it'd be later they called it Cape Kennedy. But he set up that um, we were going to have what they called the space race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wanted the best engineers only at this space center. Yeah. And my dad could get me in. So to my dad, it was the perfect job for any son to come in and follow his footsteps. And then I called him up one day and said, you know, Dad, I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to try this new thing called full contact karate. And he refused to support yeah, that. Did that. And go now down I'm a well? father and I understand. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 
But, Full contact karate, nobody even heard of it. Yeah. Did he, at what point did he sort of start warming to that idea? Was it when it, you started I'm, I'm becoming gonna, a, a champ? Gonna, <laughs> no, no. No. He still wouldn't go to the fight. Wow. It was when he saw me on TV and movies. Really? Wow, that's a then, few years and, later. And, and, and then he said, well, I guess this did have some logical, practical, positive side. You know, I studied martial arts, then I became a kickboxer, then I became an actor. Look, I was very fulfilled as a kickboxer. Yeah. Acting is a job. Yeah. It's a job. But it is a very high-paying job. <laughs> I mean, I can't complain about that. You know, people ask me, what's the most impressive thing about Hollywood? And I said, well, that's the easy one. The amounts of money they yeah. pay us to do this. <laughs> but I'm fascinated that if you were winning, you won 11 world titles, you were, you know, winning all of these amazing accolades and your so your dad was he must have been proud did he say he was proud of your achievements then uh you know he he never never actually said that but you know my dad wasn't one you know i he listen there's a generation of men that don't show emotion yeah. in america yeah. they're, they're they're probably like 90 now but my dad grew up in that generation that was a generation of the 50s 60s or whatever they did not show emotion that was considered unmanly now we're, men are supposed to get on. We were supposed to cry when we watch movies. Yeah. You know, now, now it's the emotional man is the is the secure man. Yeah. But my dad didn't, doesn't come from those days. You know, and I understand that. I believe he did love me, and he did in the end support my career choice and and everything. But he could not express it. He was not comfortable talking in that those terms. Yeah. Saying, "Hey, you made me really proud. Hey, you know, I really love you. I want to support you now, or whatever." It, it, it never came. Unfortunately, he did see me reach a level of financial security and success yeah. as an actor. Just looking back down to those, those years, those heady days when you were winning all those kickboxing uh, uh, bouts in the 1980s and you were undefeated it's champion. Best time of my life. I, yeah. I, I really enjoyed can, it. I, can you I didn't do it for the money. I did it because I enjoyed yeah. it. And can you just describe what that, because that was the first, you know, professional kickboxing circuit was obviously where you had people like Benny the Jets and you had uh, Jerry Trimble as well. I think we all had this one similar idea. Ben, I believe we all believed that we were. I, I people say, "Oh, Don's a kickboxer." And I go, "I'm not a kickboxer. I'm a kung fu stylist." I said, "Kickboxing is a sport I participated in, but I'm not a kickboxer." Yeah. I said, "That's just a sport." I use the sport of kickboxing to improve my striking ability and my defense against strikes as a martial artist. Yeah, but I was never a. Um, consider myself. Oh, I'm just a kickboxer, a guy who puts on gloves and punches and kicks, knocks people out, and just picks up a paycheck. To me, <laughs> doesn't that sound? much less consequential as a human being than a martial arts a, per, a practitioner who uses every bit of the martial arts to improve himself as a human being yeah. you know yeah. to, to, it's not just about the punching and the kicking and the throwing the side kicks and the right hooks and the overhand rights and all. it's it's about improving myself as a human being learning this self-discipline it's a slow thing and i through sports i learned that and i adapted that to my uh, fighting yeah. and believe me Arnold Schwarzenegger me and Chuck Norris we did a TV show together once and we all talked about how we were none of us were given a, a chance to make it in Hollywood Arnold said he goes looked at both because you two had an advantage over me and I'm thinking well, what advantage would I have and he, and he said you guys could speak English <laughs> yeah he said he came once to be his movie star I think Hercules in New York was his first film and they dubbed him That's the whole right. movie but when we sat and did the show he had finished Terminator 2 and he was uh, listed at that time as the highest paid actor in the world. He got $15 million. Mm. 
Mm. Or Terminator 2. Chuck had just started Walker. Walker was the number one action show in the world. And I was my, had my picture in Time Magazine for being one of the top four direct-to-video stars. Yeah. So we had all in our own areas exactly. got to the top. Yeah, and yeah. as we talked about it, we did it the same way. We did not let the... Because look... There are what they call naysayers. You know the term, right? It means that everybody's going to tell you why you can't do something. Sure. Because I was a six-foot-tall Asian with a southern accent. So I, I don't fit the Jackie Chan, Jet Li mold. And those guys weren't even around in 1985 no, when I moved right. to L.A. So, right. so, yeah, they were there. There were no Asians starring in movies in Hollywood. Yeah. But anyway, we all rose to the top of our little areas. Uh, well, mine was little, you know, video. We use the lessons we learned as athletes, not giving up, not listening to the naysayer. You know, when things went wrong, we just went into another direction and tried harder. Yeah. In other words, we we use what helped us rise. Like, you said I won 11 world titles. Yes, I did, but I never set that as a goal. I didn't say, you know how many titles I'm going to win? 11. Mm-hmm. I just said, I'm going to, in my mind, I said, I'm going to get better every day i train yeah i'm going to try to improve myself and after a certain number of days after i've been training for like six years i won my first title and then as i kept going on and on i got better and better and better and i even to this day for the body i've got at 65 i i still i still just try to improve it you're still fighting fit though don i've seen you on instagram and you're still looking healthy you're looking well you must still train and still well i always tell people if you if you tell me i got a fight coming up yeah yeah in 10 days, I'll make weight. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, so I can still fight at 175, uh, So I, 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 and I can still go 10 rounds. Uh, I do exhibitions, and those are not fights, but still, you know, they're against young guys, and they're good, and yes. they're, you know, they don't want to look bad, so they're trying. So it's a little bit competitive, but it's not a real fight. Yeah. I got headgear, we got 60-ounce gloves, yeah. and it's only three rounds. Yeah. So, you know, re- retired champions do that. You know, Wallace tells me I should stop, but... Um, I don't know. I still feel I still feel like it's fun and good. I'll still do exhibition. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I'm afraid you've no choice. How about you dead? It was Chuck that convinced you to get into movies in the first place. Well, I won't right? say he convinced me. What he did was he gave me a suggestion. Yeah. You know, he didn't say, Don, you got to do this. You got to do it. He didn't try to coerce me. He just mentioned to me, he said, you know, Don, uh, you know, I, when I was retired, Bruce Lee let me be in a movie. And, and I, I found out that, um, you know, I liked it. And it looked like it might be a good second career. And he said, you know, I, he said, when you get ready to retire, you should move to L.A., get an agent and try this as a second career, too. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, he was working for a company called Canon Films. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, 
and he was pumping out like maybe one or two movies a year, mm-hmm. and they were successful, and he was doing good. He's making money. And so, you know, he, he gave me the idea. And I, in 1985, I retired. That was the first retirement, because I retired three times. Yeah. How long were you working in movies then before you auditioned for Roger Corman? You'd been in well, I was not. In the I had 80s. not done anything. I, I, yeah. I had done a Chinese movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, ABC in Chinatown, it's called. Now, I believe it's on YouTube, but uh, it's ABC in Chinatown. Yeah. And uh, I was a bad guy in it. That was my acting. And then I had worked on General Hospital. And I had done one commercial. Sure. And I got called in by accident by them because they didn't know I was Asian looking. Right. He was, as soon as the casting director saw me, he said, oh, this is for a Caucasian lead. We've already cast the brother, and he's white. And he said, but look, he said, I don't want you to have waste your, your time. Just read for me, and maybe you'll be a bad guy. Yeah. And I read for him, and the casting director left the room, and he said, um, I'll be right back. And he comes back in, and he says, Roger Corman wants to meet you. So I go into Roger's office. I have no idea who he is, right. luckily for me, because I'd been nervous if I did. Yeah. And I go in there, and he says, tell me about yourself. And I said, I'm a retired kickboxing champion. I want to make a transition to uh, acting. And he said, would you read for me? And I started reading the scene with the casting director, and he interrupted me after, like, just probably four lines, which now I know in the business, that usually means don't let the door hit your rear end when you get out of it when you leave. <laughs> in other words, it's not a good thing when they interrupt you in the middle of the audition no. and just tell you to stop. And he just handed me the script and said, you're leaving two weeks to the Philippines. He said, you're going to star in this movie. Wow. That's it how fast that it was. That fast, and he, he looked at me and he said, you know, Don, he said, you're going to become a big international star. And I said, really? And he said, he said you're going to do these martial art movies. He goes, you're going to go to action movies. And he goes, much, much later in your life, you're going to be a dramatic actor, famous dramatic actor throughout the world. He said, wow. you leave, but he hands me the script. He goes, you leave in two weeks to the Manila. Wow, wow, wow. And, um, you know, I didn't know. I thought he was just bullshitting. You know? yeah. I didn't know who he was. But basically, I guess he, I don't know, he, he thought I had potential. He, he could tell within just, you know, I, I tell people, I, I fooled him, though, because it's the one scene I could do right. It was the scene where um, uh, my trainer in the movie tells me he killed my brother. Yeah. And so it, and so I'm close to my brother, right? He was my Kung Fu instructor. He was my manager. He was a fighter. He helped me move to L.A. And so I'm close to my brother. So I did the very first lesson you learn in any acting class. They say, if you have a problem trying to figure out what your character would do, just do the what if yeah. scene, which means yeah, yeah. what if it happened to you? Yeah. So I just said, okay, and the script says, uh, this guy killed my brother. I said, well, what if this guy killed my brother? So when I came off the page, I looked at the casting director. In my eyes, I must have gone in my face, my fight face. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Corbin <laughs> thought, oh, my God, this guy's a tremendous actor. Look at yeah. this performance. I must have looked like I was going to kill him because yeah. I, um, I, I, I tell people, I said, yeah, Roger had me read that scene. And, and really, I believe I probably did a good job with the scene Yeah. because it, it was – my brother was so close to me, and I did the most basic thing of substitution. And um, anyway, that yeah, that but I would have never, I probably wouldn't be on the phone talking to you now because it wasn't like everybody was knocking down doors to get Don Wilson in their movies. I mean, it was. Yeah. But you know, he was um, looking for because I've heard interviews with him where he talks about you. I know on his WTF oh, episodes with Mark Marin, he mentions this and he says that he had auditioned so many kickboxers and he was yeah, looking. Yeah, they were all for, in the they were they were in the room waiting room yeah. when I came there. All the and guys he from the was, center and from yeah. yeah and apparently he was like, no, no, like these guys. They may have been tough and they could do the moves, but they could not deliver. They could not do the lines. And then he said, yes, that when you walked in, it was very much an instant, like, that's our guy. 
And that, yeah, there was, no, was? there was what, no callback. There was, you know how there yeah. were callbacks? 99% of the time they call you back. You don't read one time because they think maybe it was a fluke. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. He hit the right notes by accident. No, he said, when I, he said I was cast when I was still sitting on the couch. I mean, I didn't yeah. even, <laughs> I hadn't been in his room for 10 minutes. But he, he believed in you, didn't he, Don? He put you through your acting lessons as well. Look. They used to have a thing they called, in the old days, they called it the studio system. And here's what they would do. They would find a guy, meet a guy, let's say, like Clint Eastwood. They'd say, you know what, this guy's going to be a star. He's got a good look. He's a tall, lean guy. Let's put him in some tough movies. He'll play some cowboy movies. He'll play some cop movies. And they, they, they groom them. And you work with one company. I think Clint Eastwood pretty much worked for Warner Brothers most of the time. But anyway, mm. that's what they used to do. They called it the studio system. Well, though, I believe and it could be true, I am the last one to go through it. Because yeah. Roger had a studio, a small studio, you know, it's called Concord, and he hired me a um, publicist. He gave me a weekly salary. Now, that's another thing. No one else was getting that. You don't get weekly salary, but in the studio systems, they did. Steve McQueen, yeah. all those guys, Clint Eastwood, they were Marilyn Monroe. They were all on weekly salaries mm. for the studio. And w with that contract comes, well, we can do X amount of movies. So if we're going to do X amount of movies, let's say within a year, that total would be X amount. But instead of what lump sum check, we'll give it to you by the week. Yeah. And Roger put me on a $4,000 a week salary right that time. And I, and I had that for 15 years, I guess. Maybe longer. Yeah. But um, he hired a, uh, me a publicist. He enrolled me in an acting class. He got me a acting, a special coach, you know, an acting teacher coach just for myself. He did all that for me and turned me into an actor. All yeah. back in 1988 when it started. And, and then other companies, of course, offered me movies. You know, everybody was doing movies back in the video days. Yeah, so I yeah. Did, I worked for PM Entertainment, six movies, and I just did movies with Ashok, and uh, right. I read Sun Rising for my old manager, Paul Maslach. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I did, I worked for other people, but I gotta say, I did 12 movies with Roger Corman. How many people yeah. can say they worked 12 times with the same producer. Yeah. And was he quite hands-on then? Was he um, no, going to your film sets? No, okay. Nope, not at all. He stopped by a film set once, and <laughs> it was not It was not because of a happy reason. Ah. <laughs> they, they end up having to fire the director. Oh, And dear. that's a pretty big deal, you know, when you fire a director off a movie. And, um, yeah, but, but he had to fire, and he showed up on that movie set. That's the only one he showed up wow. on. And, now, he didn't fire him that day. But things must have been going so bad that he, for Roger Corman to show up on the set, you know, I, I worked with a guy for 30 years and it only happened once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which movie was that then? Future Kick. That was on Future, Future Kick. Future Kick, we ended up using three different directors. To wow, finish. really? Now, he, and it took a year to make it, by the way. But huh. while I was shooting a movie called Blood Fist 3, uh, Forced to Fight, a prison Forced movie, yeah, on yeah, the yeah. weekends I was still shooting Future Kick. Wow. So I was doing two movies at once. But the thing is, the thing about Future Kick is Roger turned the negative, which was it took so long to make it, into a positive. He said, when it was released, it's, he, it, on the top of the poster, it says, a year in the making. Yeah, like, brilliant. this movie is so good, <laughs> it took us a year to make this. But he's the king, he was the king of that, you know, and selling those, the way yeah, he, he marketed turned it his into, movies. Uh, was... He turned it into, it took a year to make it, but instead of, you know, complaining about it, he turned it into, well, look, this movie's so good because it took us a year to make yeah. it. <laughs> is that the one where you're, that's the, you're like a sort of cyborg uh, cop thing? Yeah, is that the, that the, one? Bizarre, yeah, yeah. Okay, the bizarre thing is this, 
Ben, like I told you, there's two different directors. Now, the director makes the movie, not me. The, they, one director had that I was a genetically engineered human. The yeah. other director had that I was a robot. So yeah. that, they had scenes where there, there was robotic stuff, and they are putting these, these sparks are flying off this guy, and there's electricity. And, and then they had scenes of me drinking alcohol and getting drunk. Yeah. On top yeah. of a rooftop with Meg Fox. I mean, the movie... Look, I'm glad Roger made money on it. And, and oh, by the way, I, you know, I have a little film history with that movie. Yeah. Roger Corman had never distributed a video in his life. Because what he did was he had what he called output deals. He would sign a contract with MGM. My first two movies were, by the way, were, were released by MGM. And Roger would let them distribute the video. And Roger, he saw how much money Bloodfist 1 and 2 made. And then Roger said, you know, Don, I'm going to release my first video with Future Kick. He said, if I lose money, I'll never do it again. Yeah. And I believe he made like three and a half million on the thing. Wow. And um, so he made, he made several million. Yeah, and that's good for low-budget movies because, you know, he'd make 20 movies in a year. So if you're making, let's say, an average of $2 million each movie, 20 million of them, or 20 movies, you're making good money, right? Yeah. You're making $40 but million you, a year. You could do that. That video market was booming. And because of people like yourself, then that created a slew of these kickboxers and real martial artists yeah. flooding the going to Hollywood and then making that video But if you think about it, it of all the ones that were there, how many starred in 30 films? Yeah, yeah. All, and by the way, all money makers. Even the last one I started in, which was uh, The Last Sentinel, really, where, where I was the star, they all made money. <laughs> Centipede, don't be dumb. Fight with me. Or else they'll finish you. Hollywood is a, is notoriously a tough place to, to be and it can be ruthless. And um, I'm just wondering, how did you weather those storms? Because you must have had them. And it's rare to get a career like yours, which has sustained for so many years. Um, what do you put that down to? You know, I... No, 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 listen. This is just my opinion, because I don't know for a fact. But I think that... Um, what what I've done is, I, I didn't go strictly for the money. In other words, like you asked me what projects I'm going to do, and I'm not just saying, well, whoever pays me the most money, that's the one I'm going to do. Yeah. Because I was my my mentor in this business was a guy named Chris Penn, Sean Penn's younger brother. He yeah. was my best friend. We lived together. We traveled together. We trained together. Anyway, I was the last guy to talk to him. Rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, when he yeah. hung up the phone with me, he had a heart attack that night and died. Wow. But anyway, he, he was my best friend, and he said, Don, he said, here's what's going to happen with your career. He said, you're going to start getting offers, and, he says, when you, when, and they're going to be big money offers. And they were. They were for me at that time. And um, he said, don't get excited when the money's big, because he said, you'll find in this business, the bigger the money, the worse the project. Yeah. And I go, well, why does it work that way? And he said, well, because if, they have, if you've got Martin Scorsese and you've got an Oscar-nominated um, uh, a script writer, and you've got a bunch of stars. He said, they don't have to pay anybody anything. Everybody's dying to be in the movie. Mm. But if it's a crappy movie and they don't have other stars and the script's not so good and they have a low budget, and, and he said, then they just got to get any name to do it. And the only way they'll do it is for the money. He said, if you want a long career, go for the best project and let the money be a secondary thing. Yeah, and yeah. I did. That's what I did. Look, my third movie, I was offered three hundred fifty thousand to do a movie in Indonesia, and I turned it down because it was a bad script. 
Mm. You know, it was a bad film company. The company was really bad, but that's a lot of money for me, 350000 back then. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd yeah. a lot of money for anybody in it today. I'd like to get that, but... Oh, you just wouldn't get those film, those films nowadays. The ma- that martial arts circuit, that market there is just completely dead. It's really... Oh, no, no, they couldn't get... No, nobody couldn't... Nobody could even offer it. But what, what no. he was saying was this. They will take my, my two... F- first two films released by MGM and they made millions I think Blood Fist made 1.7 million at the theaters in America yeah. alone yeah. and then worldwide sold it sold I think 60,000 cassettes which was about 4.5 million dollars so it made 1.6 million so it was around uh, 6 million just domestic 6 million wow. and probably 3 to 4 million foreign so let's say it grossed 10 million dollars my first film mm. well you know what that's a lot of money for low budget guys for, yeah. for, for that kind of a movie yeah, you know, for Roger Corman, ten million dollars, and you know what? The movie cost two hundred thousand. By the way, that's what the director figured. Yeah. So the, wow. the the total cost of the movie was two hundred thousand. Mm. I was the star. I got a thousand a week. It took six weeks to shoot it. I got six grand. Yeah. To wow. blood fist. Now, I did that movie. Then you know, everybody thought it might be a fluke. Blood fist two does the same numbers. So mm. then I get an offer to do an Indonesian movie. And they offer me three hundred fifty thousand. So here's what Roger said. Roger said, Don, they're going to give you the three hundred fifty thousand. They're going to spend about 100000 on the movie, and it's going to be a terrible movie. It's going to hurt anything I try to do or any other producer in America tries to go up budget with you. It's going to hurt. Roger said, I know it's a lot of money, but I, I, my advice is not to take the offer. Because that's what Roger did. Roger said, would I bring my offers from other com- companies to him to look at, and he's going to give me his advice, and I could take it or leave it. In other yeah. words, he did not hold me to an exclusive contract. And um, so I said no, and he was absolutely – now I look back and I said, man, that, that's – those movies are the career killers. That's that's what uh, they called, and they called it back then, the Eric Estrada syndrome. Eric Estrada was the number one TV actor in America at one time. He had a show called Chips in America. Yeah. And he went from that to being the term they use for bad movies. They go, oh, that looks like an Eric Estrada movie. Because what he did was, he didn't know, he knew TV, but he didn't know the movie industry. He thought all these big money offers he took the biggest money and made the worst films, a whole mm. string of them, like three and four and five and six maybe, until his name stood for bad movie. Mm. Because the sound, the script, the, the, the story, whatever, what, everything was bad. Like, like an Eric Estrada movie became a term they used out here. They threw around back in the late 80s and 90s. Yeah. And I, thought, I kept thinking to myself, wow, you can go from the highest paid actor in America, which he was, by the way, yeah. highest paid actor on Chips. Yeah. was the show. Yeah, they say you, you're only as good as your last movie, aren't you, I guess? And that's the... That, well, you know, that's the somewhat true, but not 100%. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you get more chance rolls of the dice. Uh, yeah. A given example would be John, John Travolta. John Travolta yeah, did course. Saturday Night Fever. It was a hot movie. Did mm. really good, great. Then he did, he did like three or four bad movies. And b- by the time he did Pulp Fiction, he was getting paid half what I was getting paid. I was getting 220000 a film. He did Pulp Fiction, for what I understand, for 100000 Right. And look what happened to Travolta wow. after that movie. He started making $20 million a film. Yeah, amazing. When you were working in that video market, market Don, were you looking towards uh, w- one of these days this, this big mainstream break is just going to... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I always, I'm always looking, and still am, you're only one movie away from a big hit. Yeah. You know, yeah. the right script, the right director, right producer. So, um, you know, the possibility is always there. But I also have some, you know, I of course, of course I have pet projects. 
Yeah, things yeah, that I would like to get made. One of them is another vampire movie. I've got that, and I believe that's going to be my version of the Expendables, though. Uh, right. But um, it's going to be Expendables where you get a group of B movie guys together to fight a bunch of vampires. Yes. And uh, right. you know, I've got it set up to where it's affordable. We can afford them all because it's going to be in one building, like Die Hard. Yeah. Yeah. The vampires are in one building, and we're a SWAT unit going in there, chasing these bank robbers. But when we get when we get in, it turns out there's vampires in the building, and the vampires, of course, have to kill all the humans. Can't let any of us, including the bank robbers, because then they'll be found out. Great. Once we know what they, so what they do is they have to kill us all, and the bank robbers and the cops join forces. The SWAT unit and yeah. these bank robbers join forces and fight together against vampires. I, I, I could have easily made it several years ago, but. Um, I don't want to do it that cheaply. I want enough money that it looks good because I'd like to release it in the theaters because if you get all the B-movie guys in one film, it makes it more likely I could, I believe I could get a theatrical distribution. You notice that in a film like Showdown in Manila, say, where you're in there, but then Cynthia's in there as well. And well, that's different though because that's there. kind of a scammy way of doing it. We're, not, we're never mentioned in the movie and then boom, we're in the last yeah. scene. Yeah. Well, this is not that way. We're actors throughout. The, all of them are all through it. As far as the older actors in it, the old retired team, those are going to be guys like Michael Dudikoff, Richard yeah. Norton, Cindy Rothrock, me. You know, all the B movie guys that you've seen all together. Yeah. But we're in the opening scene, right through to the end. We're we're characters yeah. in the movie. What what he, what um what was done? Nevsky was doing with Showdown Manila is this. He said, "Well, I, the Expendables they had all these names, so I'm going to have the names." So he wrote a script and then just threw us all in in the last scene where yeah. there's no dialogue, no relationships hardly at all, and we just come in and do one action scene each, and then the movie's over. So yeah. in my opinion, that's kind of the old ripping off the audience style. I don't think that satisfies them. And, and do you, because you still hang out with, you still see Michael Dudikoff, Cynthia Rothrock, yeah. Olivia Yeah, we, well, we see each other at events. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't go to their house and hang out. <laughs> sure. like, you know, they don't have time to just, you know, I visit. I, I like to say I was, I'm sociable, but if I have a free minute, I just spend it with my family. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. But we see each other at events. You know, that's why I like to go to events. Um, is I get to see, you know, my friends from around the world. Hey, hey! The sky is high. The cloud is low. Hey! But my water technique is hard to beat. But the Earth can absorb water. We're doing the um, uh, sequel to The Martial Art Kid. Yeah. And uh, that, that's going to be a good movie. It's going to be more action. You know, they decided to go for like an, uh, like an older feel to it, you know. Because yeah. um, I guess uh, nothing wrong with the family movies, but how many family movies have you seen The Dragon in? Yeah. <laughs> Worldwide, when you got punching and kicking, it, it, the audience is usually a little older than the PG-13. Yeah. You know, yeah. the 13-year-old, the 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds, you know. They're, you know. So anyway, I think they're going to go with a little older version uh, of the Martial Art Kid. It'll be Martial Art Kid 2, Payback, I think it's called. Yeah. And then uh, there's a movie called Paying Mr. McGetty that's already done, starring Marcus R. Taylor, who yeah. played Suge Knight straight out of Compton, if you ever saw that movie, straight yeah, out of Compton. Yeah, movie. And this one, though, he plays, you know, he was a, a dangerous, scary guy. Yeah. Uh, in Straight Outta Compton. Well, this one he plays the good guy. This is a comedy, isn't it? It's not. This isn't. It's not a martial art. It's got martial well, arts it, elements in it. It's it's martial arts. I'm going to tell you some genres because and they're all in it. Martial arts, action, comedy, love story. Because <laughs> yeah. the love Co story between him bases. and his colleague uh, Anita Clay is the actress. She's a very talented martial artist and uh, a great actress as well. She's phenomenal in this, in this movie. And I play the bad guy. Yeah, my hitman. 
Yeah. And so you'll yeah. you'll see it's a comedy, but they call when somebody dies in the opening scene in a comedy, it's called a dark comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not. It's not. It's still a family film, I would say. Yeah. But there's yeah. no cursing. There's no nudity, and there's no blood yeah. and gore and all that. But it does have some dangerous elements to it. You know, they they okay. they, they wanted me to be scary, and my character is kind of scary. Looking back, I mean, you've been in so many films, and you know, so many fan favorites there. But do you have a personal favorite of some of the you know the work that you have done that you you look back on? That yeah, you, you quite I, I I would say overall uh, the movie is. And it's being re-released in Germany this year. It's okay. called Red Sun Rising. Red Sun Rising, yes. That's, Red, Red um, Sun Rising. It's an a- HBO world premiere, yeah. and it co-stars Mako, uh, Edward Albert Jr., yeah. uh, Michael Ironside, Terry Farrell, and James Liu. James Liu's doing the Death Touch. Is that the Death Touch movie? Correct. That's yes. the Death Touch. Yes. Which was unusual back in those days, you know. They, they didn't talk a lot about it then, and, and uh, it was um, uh, an HBO world premiere, and did really well, very successful, and I wish yeah. we had done sequels to that. I think that character, uh, Thomas Ashino, could have been uh, an ongoing, you know, kind of like a franchise for me. Well, that was interesting because that movie, you were playing, you you were sort of playing a version of, of yourself in a, in a oh, way. Oh, absolutely. Because, no, no. Yeah. If I could choose any of the characters in, in, in my films, closest one to me would be this guy, Thomas Oshino. He was uh, Japanese, he was American. Because um, remember, he talked about his childhood, how he had problems because he was half white. Yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah. You know I, I, you know what? My manager produced that. So I'm sure he told the writer, hey, you know, Don used to get picked on when he was, because he was half yellow. <laughs> well, they just flipped it. They just turned it. Um, you know, that movie actually originally, uh, it was about a guy, two guys budding up because we were going to do a movie. This was, Chris Penn was going to play my, the American cop, not the not Terry Farrell. Chris was doing True Romance at the time, and, and right. he couldn't do the movie, so we rewrote it so there was a girl, and then I think it made it better because it became a love story. Yeah, and she's great in that film. Yes, she is. She was great. She came across, in my opinion, strong, but still feminine. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it all, you know, that movie worked in many ways. The music ended up being really good for for the budgets of those kind of movies yeah and um, you know michael's ironside of course he's always great michael ironside uh, yeah he's he's the he's the he's chief the isn't he police chief yeah. yeah yeah but listen listen the, the the guy playing my my uncle that guy's been nominated for an oscar mako it was a fun shoot that one as well then was it Yes, uh, you know what? I have fun on all my sets because I happen to work in the genre that is my hobby. You know, it's like if your hobby is uh, racehorses and you're doing a racehorse movie, I mean, of course you're gonna you're gonna have fun. See, I just want to kill you like dogs. And Batman Forever, of course, does sort of stick out in your filmography. Yeah. Did you enjoy working on that? Because Joel Schumacher, yeah, I had a great time because it's a big studio film, but yeah, Joel yeah. Schumacher actually wanted me to work throughout the whole movie for three months as a bad guy that worked for Tommy Lee Jones, like a head henchman yeah. kind of a person. Yeah. But I couldn't do that because I had contracts with other companies. So uh. so he said, well, you know, he gave me this character who, who does one fight scene and leaves, and I said, yeah, that's perfect. So yeah. that's why I did it. And, um, you know, I could pick my own kind of uh, face because they were going to be painted up, and I picked the skull face because... The other ones were just weird designs. Yeah. And I thought, 
Well, if people want to know which character I am, I just say, hey, I'm the one with the skull face. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're the only one who actually gets a speaking part out of that. Out of that. You're, you're kind of like the head of that gang, aren't you, I guess, in a way. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And the other movie that sticks out, because I saw it relatively recently, that, that Diamond Cartel movie. I don't know, have you got... Oh, around... yeah, they renamed that, though. I believe yeah. it's been renamed, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I... It was called the world, it, the world at their feet, the world at your feet. Oh, yeah, that's right. Now it's called Diamond Cartel. Diamond Cartel, yeah. Well, the Did world you... at our feet, that's not a good name for an action movie. No. I think Diamond <laughs> no. Cartel is a better name. Yeah. But, Did you, have uh, you, you seen know, it? Just one scene. I did one scene. Basically. Yeah, yeah, or maybe, yeah. No, maybe two scenes, two scenes, because yeah. um, You're not in it I did a one phone scene with Armand Asante. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's just on the phone, though. But um, uh, no, the, a friend of mine was producing it in Kazakhstan, and I happened to be in Kazakhstan <laughs> at the time. Right. And uh, me and Olivier just, just appeared, you know, we just did the one scene. They call those cameos. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not really a character. No. To me, you're not a character if you're not at least pivotable enough where the, in the script that you can't be removed. Yeah. yeah. In other words, if the story still makes sense and your entire character, every scene that you did in the movie is cut out, then you were not a real character. You're not yeah. really in the movie. <laughs> I think the, um, the director, from what I understand, was a fan of mine. I mean, like he liked my movies, and yeah. and he heard yeah. he heard I was in I was in Kazakhstan for something else. I think I was there for a, a film festival or something. But anyway, yeah. I was there for something else, and he asked if I'd do it. And of course, you know, it was not it's hard an interesting, work. It's an interesting film, and uh, whoever and they managed to get Bolo Young in there as well, which is uh, quite an achievement because I think he's he's all but retired now, really. But uh, <laughs> to get him, well, in the I movie, think they also it. got they they also got what is that British actor? The thing he's Peter, actor Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole is in it. Yeah. Now, that, now it's it's very his last odd. film. Can, his final it's, film. It's very odd when you have Peter O'Toole and Bolo <laughs> Young and Don the Dragon Ball and yeah, Olivia Grinner in the same, in the same movie. movie. <laughs> <laughs> we should mention Cynthia because you do work with her quite a bit and you have done uh, well, recently. Well, we have the same agent. You... We've, we've had the same agent since I've been out yeah. here. I've had, got the same one since 1985, which is unusual. You know, in this business, people go from agent to agent. Yeah. You know, my brother was my, my manager and the head of the organization, promotional organization, had the TV contract. They wanted me to go with them instead of my brother and I said, no. My brother stayed my manager. And what ended up happening is I became the most famous kickboxer, one of the most, and the highest paid kickboxer. Yeah. And in the movie industry, I stayed with the same agent and I became... The only one of the B movie guys is still working, probably. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. I started thirty you, films. I'm still. Do you put that down to that loyalty there that you've, you know, and you've got good people around you? Do you put it down to that? You know what? Um, I don't think that's necessarily a key to success because maybe yeah. I would have been much more successful if I would dump my agent right off the bat and gone to a bigger agent and dump my brother, signed a contract with the VK. But you got to think to yourself, you know, what is really the most important thing, and uh, you know. Is the most important thing when I'm 90 years old in my bed and dying to say, hey, uh, I had the biggest bank account. Yeah. Or or I lived a life I'm not ashamed of. Yeah. I'm proud of the decisions I made. Proud of the people I I helped and the you know people I worked with and the decisions I made and you know you were, we're all going to make wrong decisions and stuff and. Uh, you want to look, I, if I have time to look back on my life, I want to look back and say, hey, you know, I'm not, I, I, I we only have a certain amount of, uh, length of time, a certain amount of time, any of us, and nobody gets out of this alive. So I want to live the way I'm proud of my life. If I said, you know what, my agent that helped me when nobody else would take me in town, I didn't know how to do dialogue, I didn't, I wasn't even enrolled in acting, the agent, the guy who helped me out in the very beginning gave me all the good advice, 
I dropped them as soon as I could to make more money doing a TV series. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see, look at my account, I'm dying right now, but you look at my account, you see there's all those extra zeros. Those zeros wouldn't have been there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm proud of those zeros. I yeah. got those zeros because I dumped my agent and I went to, with CAA, the big agency. No, I, I wouldn't. Look, I'm not the only guy who thinks this way. Jack Nicholson, I saw, one of the Oscars he got, he pointed in the audience and said, I'm still with the same agent I started with. And he's right there. And he, he was like this old he guy, must have been 150 years old. <laughs> he was a little thin guy sitting in the front row, and Jack Nicholson was picking up on one of his Oscars. So he obviously, the, the same. And look, I'm surprised his agent didn't dump him because he was getting SAG minimum after acting for 14 years. Wow. And wow. Um, yeah, you know what? I never got SAG minimum. I, I got. A thousand a week from Roger, the first movie I did. Mm. But mm. This, I, so I started, and I was a star. I, I didn't work my yeah. way up. I did, I did not, and I've talked to my agent about this. Ray Cavalieri is his name. I, I said, Ray, I didn't pay my dues. And Ray said, you paid your dues as a martial artist. Yeah. You made your yeah. name popular. People knew you. The, your fans followed you from your fights. You fought all, I did. I fought all over the world. I fought on network TV. I fought on NBC Sports World. Yeah. You know, millions of people watched me. So that was before I ever did movies. Yeah. So yeah. that probably did help my movies in the very beginning, but at a certain point, you know, after a couple of movies, I got some exposure from the movies that people knew me more from movies than they did from the fighting. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was but, it was a positive thing in the beginning. But, but there's also there's that ownership you've got to take on yourself as well because there's so many distractions when you're in that Hollywood bubble that could easily have taken you away from certain things whether that's you know friends and family you know the yes, quest for you money, know what? i don't vice, want to say anything bad stuff. about the people in hollywood that have let their egos get out of hand yeah. because when it hits you and you're 18 19 20 and you're famous and rich and everybody's telling you how great you are you could start believing your own press that's what they call yeah. it believe in your own press and but remember with me and chuck and arnold it came way later for us yeah yeah. It wasn't when we were 18, 17, 19, 20, 20. We weren't young guys. We were grown men who had become champions and knew how hard it worked. And, you know, a guy who is like an Arnold, who's a champion, you know, he won Mr. Olympia, Olympia, I don't know how many times, seven, eight times or whatever. When he sees the guy come to the gym and he's a beginner, he's got more empathy for them than you and I would. Because mm. he can remember way back when his first days. And I'm the same way. I see a guy who just start a beginner. I'm more likely to go over and say, hey, look, you know, you don't have to do it this way. You can do it. This. In other words, we all started there, and we look back on it and, and um, appreciate the fact that the, the people are trying to do their best, and even though they don't have a skill level like we have at this point, we remember that. And, and Chuck, you know, they didn't believe Chuck. There had never been a martial artist starring in a, movie, a TV series. And Chuck was not considered an actor who could carry a series. And not only did he carry it, he carried it, it was the number one action se- series for eight years. Yeah. That show yeah. only quit because Chuck was done doing it. Yeah. He was tired of it. I yeah. mean, he didn't need any more money. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I never heard Chuck complain about anything, but whenever he would see me while he was doing Walker, he would always say how much time it took and how much work it was yeah, doing, yeah. producing a TV series. Yeah, yeah, he, he did complain a little bit about that. It's the butterfly style. Ha! <laughs>
I know that you've you've got kids. You're a you're a family man, and I know that one of your kids is getting into acting, or is a is an actor on the on the. Well, stage. my daughter is going to an acting school. I mean, yeah. Loxa is the performing arts school here in L.A. But her her real goal, she's saying now, is she wants to be a medical doctor. Uh, oh, right. Okay. Her entire time in high school, she never made a B. She made A's and A pluses. Wow. So oh, wow. She, if she wants to be an actress, you know, she, she entered the Shakespeare Festival yeah. uh, and won first place out of 17 of the top schools in California. Wow. So wow. obviously she's got talent as an actress. She can act and she could be a medical doctor. If she, maybe she can do both. <laughs> yeah. But if she turned around or if any of your kids turned around and said to you that they wanted to be fighters or to go into the, oh, the cage or whatever. Oh, thank God they did. Oh, really? You, you, them, would oh, you, yeah. Yeah, you'd oh. warn them off that. Yes, it's dangerous. I'm lucky to get through it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a dangerous sport. There's no money in it. And uh, even if there was money, I, don't, I, I would not sleep at night knowing that somebody's going to try to, you know, knock one of my kids out with a back of your roundhouse kick. <laughs> yeah. Too nervous. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad they did not. I, it's like a lot of people say, why didn't your kids get come kickbox? Why didn't they? Take? They've all studied martial arts, a, sm- a small amount of martial arts. They, yeah. It was, n- was never any of their passions. So I'm not one of those dads that's going to say, no, you got to do it, you got to do it. No, they, 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 they got the life lessons they learned, and they, they worked. My son really excelled in baseball, Drayden. And um, uh, my daughter liked dance. When she wanted to do exercise, would always dance. And then sometimes she runs. She, she was running for a while. So they do their own thing. And I, I didn't uh, want to, you know, force myself on them that I love martial arts, so you got to love martial arts. Yeah. Yeah, okay, you weren't a pushy dad in that, in that sense. <laughs> no, no, and right. I understand that uh, Brandon Lee kind of rebelled against martial arts a little bit because, um, you know, he wanted to be an actor, but then yeah. they found out if he could do martial art movies, he could definitely star in movies right now. Yeah. So that's why he did it. But he was, you know, unfortunately he passed away, but he, he was on his way to do the crossover. He did a crossover film. The Crow is not a martial arts film. That's, no, that's a horror no. action film. And no. I believe he could have done whatever he wanted after that movie. Yeah, yeah, but, um, absolutely. But no, uh, Bruce Lee probably, you know, I could see his kids when they were young. He was working out with them. But, they, but I'm sure as they got older, if they wanted to do other sports and things, he would have done like me and just kind of backed off. I don't think yeah. he would have said, no, you can't do baseball, you can't do basketball, you got to do kung fu. Don, thank you so much for this and, uh, uh, and oh, being thank you, patient ben. I as well. It. I, I should just say, because you were the first, I only started this podcast, uh, well, it was, yeah, three years ago, and you were one of the, you were the first person I had in mind that I wanted to, to chat to. So it's taken a very long time for us to get here, well, but I'm really glad that, that we did. I apologize for that. I apologize for that. We'll, we'll no, have to talk worry. more often then. Yeah, absolutely. Don, thank you so much for your time. Ben, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yes, yes, great stuff there. Don Wilson, the dragon himself. Really good to finally chat to Don. He's a bit of a childhood hero of mine, so um, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Don. Don's in his mid-60s, but he's still working hard and travelling and touring and looking great. Uh, We do wish him all the best for his future projects. He is quite active on Facebook, I noticed, so if you do want to keep up to date with Don, then probably his Facebook pages is the best place to start. Before I sign off, a quick reminder that we are still looking for contributors to the website, particularly in helping to bulk up our 
database of reviews. A few people have already been in touch. Thank you so much. That's awesome. If you do have a passion for film and specifically martial arts movies, then we would love to hear from you. You can register your interest in writing for the Kung Fu Movie Guide by sending us a sample review of your favourite martial arts film to hello at kungfumovieguide.com. That is also the email address you can use to send any correspondence regarding the website or this podcast. Whatever you want to send us, if you have a question that you'd like answering or indeed a a shout-out on the show, please do get in touch. We do love to hear from you. Okay, a few thank yous. Thank you so much, George Dennis, for your ongoing technical support. A big thank you to Don Wilson for taking part in today's episode of the show. And a big thank you to you, of course, the loyal Foo follower, for listening right to the end of the show. Thank you so much for checking out and downloading this episode. If you are enjoying the show, then please do tell a friend or leave us a review or a star rating with your podcast provider. That is a great way to help spread the word of the show and hopefully attract even more Foo followers. So thank you so much for your time. We will be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. Until then, take good care and I will see you next time on the show. All the best. Bye for now. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.